after the Verona trial, when all avenues of uh, democratic struggle were taken away, all the organisations of the African people, the Indian people were closed down, the Communist Party was banned, trade unions were banned, then what had been decades of peaceful mass resistance turned into a necessi necessity for armed struggle. And uh, Ronnie had a sabotage group in Durban. They blew up pylons. There's some wonderful photographs. If you go into the archives uh, of, of, of the struggle, you'll see these pylons all fractured uh, where they blew them up and put Durban into darkness for three days. Um, so it was economic targets that they targeted, not people. Uh, and military targets as the campaign grew. But at that time, they were all outside the country. Ronnie was sent to London to set up uh, a project to take people into South Africa so that they could distribute leaflets and uh, other things to show that the ANC was still active and alive whilst the ANC regrouped work to get people back inside the country and rebuild the organisation inside the country. Uh, so Ronnie had the idea of going to the uh, LSE, but also approaching the Young Communist League to get students and young workers who were white so they could go into South Africa to go in to carry out these uh, leaflet uh, distributions. And uh, one of the first people that went in 1969... Was it? Was 68, 69. 68 was Ken Keeble, who became the author of this book, London Recruits, and he recruited Peter then. So... so I mean, that's the transitional framework. Subsequently, things changed because the ANC was able to rebuild and re-establish the organisation inside the country. And the role of people who had been recruited in London to do the job, hence London recruits, they came from all over the country and all over the world, in effect. Um, the role of what they did changed, and we'll come on to that maybe later. And you spoke about how... You spoke about South Africa, like, when you joined the London recruits in the ANC. Did you have an idea of what was going on in South Africa before? Yes, I mean, I'd been involved from the age of 15 in the anti-colonial struggle, in the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, was very familiar with the apartheid regime, its character, the discrimination, the abuse, the, dis the removal of people from their homes into townships and, and the complete lack of democratic rights and the utter abuse and misuse of them, and the theft of their land and their resources by the uh, settlers. However, I will say, for all of us, I think, when we went into the country, despite all that knowledge and understanding, the shock of actually seeing the reality of apartheid South Africa was, was unbelievable. That was my next question. What were you guys experienced like in South Africa when you first went? Because... I went to South Africa when I was younger, because my grandma's South African, and she was um, very close to Nelson Mandela at the time. So my first time was the first time she'd been back in years. So I must have been very young at the time, but I still remember what it was like for her going back after leaving at, at 16. So I asked, what were you guys experienced like in a country which you heard so much prior before you went? That's a difficult question. Sorry, I have to lay it on you like that. Uh, you had to... It's just the idea of walking by a park and seeing a bench which was for black people only mm -hmm. and a bench which was for white people only. Mm -hmm. And if either sat on either, they'd get arrested. Of course, the blacks, if they did it, they had a terrible time. The whites just got told off. In the shops, you had separate entries for white and black people. On the beaches, you had uh, separate beaches, that sort of thing. 
complete separation, apartheid really separation. You had a scenario whereby during the day the streets were mainly filled with uh, white people, um, but uh, at certain periods in the late afternoon or the early morning, loads of blacks would come in to the town and they would go out. So in the evenings, for example, you had uh, mainly white people around. And uh, as Bob will remember, one time I went out in the evening because we'd been licking envelopes, etc. And uh, Bob was not feeling too good. And I decided, because I wanted to go to Treptower, or Treptower, the, the big uh, TV station in Hillborough, television tower, I wanted to go and have a look at that. So I'm walking out along past um, Hillborough Park or something, I can't remember the name of it now. And uh, imagine the idea. I'm singing to myself in those days. Joe Stalin was a mighty lamb because I was just singing it quietly to myself just to remind me that I am a revolutionary. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, this black guy runs across in front of me. And then this car comes screaming around the corner like out of an American gangster film, right? Winds the window down. Gun points, shoots, winds the window up. In front of your eyes? Yeah, in front of me. I mean, one of the things, we were, we were revolutionaries, we were anti-racist, we were activists, and there we were, and you walk down a street in Johannesburg, and there's a black guy just wandering along the street, and a white guy comes out of a shop, turns, kicks the black guy into the gutter. And you immediately want to leap in and grab this guy and call the police. And, and then you suddenly think, hang on a minute. And you don't. You turn your face and you walk on because you're there to do a job, not to get involved in that and expose yourself. But the difficulty of overcoming your whole being, your moral, your, your moral outlook, your, your emotions, everything that you believe and stand for, and walk on and pretend you didn't see it because that's what the rest of the people on the street were doing. And the crime that this guy committed, he, did, he didn't, when he saw a white man come out of a shop and move towards the space he was in, step into the gutter. Because that's what was expected. And these things were a real shock. That was so much more in your face as a, as a, as a reality compared with theoretical understanding of, of discrimination and, and exploitation. Was it like... I can't imagine how hard it must have been for you guys to see certain stuff like that and to see a guy get shot in front of you, but you can't act upon it because you're here for a mission. The self-discipline must have took for you guys to remember why you're here and what, what you're fighting for must have been a lot on a day-to-day basis. Like, What gave you the discipline to not act on the first instinct that you saw? We were quite disciplined. One of the things of our experience in the Uncommunist League is we did have good political and personal training. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we did learn there to balance our emotions against the needs of the day. One of the things we were able to experience very early on is speaking in public, uh, which has served us all very well for the rest of our lives. Uh, it's not something a lot of people find easy. But, you know, and focusing your mind, separating your issues, keeping your eye on the prize, and all of that helped. But it's still you'd still come away shaking and... Go and have a drink and say, oh, you know, how, you know, not 
you know, tomorrow we mustn't <laughs> mustn't react, you know, again. Uh, you know, it was it was it was it wasn't easy. I can't imagine. And um, you see, you see, when you, when you was in the UK and you was, um, how were you actually getting the information of what was going on in South Africa? Was it just from the news, from the mainstream media, or were like, yeah, how 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 were you getting information of what was going on? Well, I mean, yeah, basically from the news, basically because um, people like us would be reading the uh, Daily Worker, which became the Morning Star in about uh, 1973, I think it was. But were, were they giving you an, an accurate... Um, yeah, did they thought of the news at all? Yeah, the genuine news, not what was... You know, because the British government at that time and the British business was absolutely committed to supporting the, the apartheid regime. So they managed that news and... You know, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. And Maggie Thatcher, this woman who, before she died, claimed to have always supported freedom in South Africa, yeah, said he would come to power over her dead body. Well, she died and he came to power. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, history has a way of being quite cruel to some people. But, you know, the, the, the reality, uh, we see the mass anti-apartheid movement in its last period and the big concerts and so on. But in the early days, it was a very much a minority of people engaged in that. And you'd have meetings of 20, 30 people. You'd have meetings in someone's front room discussing. We did involve ourselves, obviously, in demonstrations. We had speakers at our uh, YCL branch meetings from, from the ANC explaining what was going on as well. Um, different ways of which we were informed and developed that understanding. We were engaged in uh, public meet, big public meetings with visitors from South Africa and other Southern African countries involved in the struggle against colonialism. And just, just to add, uh, in terms of where I was from in the student movement, that was one of the big uh, demonstration stages, 1968 in Paris, etc. Uh, that was all building up. And where I was, uh, a Dr. Terence Miller uh, was appointed from uh, what was Malaysia, was now Zimbabwe, as the principal of the uh, college at the Polytechnic of London, and that caused a whole series of student strikes. And at the same time, I couldn't not get involved in that, but I had to hide the fact that I had already done uh, missions for, for the ANC. So the student movement for me was also an important part of that. And as we've previously said, particularly in terms of international solidarity, the Vietnamese uh, struggles were extremely important in developing our understanding of international solidarity. So I've got a question for you. I asked, I asked Leila and Buresh this as well. So during, whilst you're obviously in, um, in the process of trying to achieve the goal of there being no apartheid in South Africa, whilst you're in the process of that, did you, did you ever feel discouraged? Like, because when, cause when, cause when you're seeing people getting killed, like, right in front of you, and it's so normal, and it's so, and the people in power are allowing this. Does, does it ever think, ah, oh, there's no way this can ever change? There's no way people could ever be civil, or if it is, it won't. I won't live to see that day because, sorry, so because, for example, even now, yeah, um, I said this. I said this on the other podcast. COVID, COVID nineteen. It's only been <laughs> one year, but it feels like forever. And sometimes even I get this discouraged, like as a DJ. When, cause, 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 there was time where there were no, um, couldn't do no events. Yeah, I started thinking, oh, should I even carry on? Because 
Will will there ever be crowds of more than a hundred people? Do you know what I mean? And this this is so minor compared to what you guys went through. But even I get discouraged. So did you ever sit there thinking, maybe, maybe it's just not meant to be? But if in understanding international solidarity, right, that understanding means that in doing what we did, we were assisting the people of South Africa. And to know full well at the end of the day, as far as their struggle was concerned, that they dismantled apartheid, right? There is no question of what you were trying to say about being um, unhopeful. Yeah. Things, right? Because we made a contribution. I'll see if I know them. We made a contribution. It was not for us to tell the ANC how they should act, what policies they should have, etc. They asked us for assistance, and it was the assistance that we gave. And in giving that assistance, we had the confidence that they would eventually, not us, they would eventually liberate uh, from apartheid. Just as I have very confidence today, even at 70 years of age, that the working class of my country will eventually build socialism in my country even if it doesn't happen after I've died. I know it's going to happen. Yes. We were young and enthusiastic, uh, involved in our own struggles and many international struggles in solidarity. We, had, we, we were very human and we have emotions, so we had highs and lows undoubtedly. You know, we celebrated victories and we commiserated with each other in defeats. But I think we were always confident that where there was um, a wrong, this would be challenged. There would always be people who would challenge that. And where they were structural and societal wrongs, the people fighting against that, whether it was uh, economic, political or racial exploitation or you know, unfairness, that they would win in the end. So we always had that confidence. It was partly, the, I suppose, the way we were as people. Character. I guess. It was partly the training and education we received through our political en- engagement. Uh, but I think we were very fortunate to be able to see a very much bigger picture. So it was never that thing there that put us down, because there was always something else happening that balanced it. Yeah. So having that worldview, seeing the world and seeing the struggles that were taking place all over the world, we were very much more up than down, down. I'm sure. And that's, that's good, because sometimes that can make a difference. Because you never know. Say, say if you just felt discouraged and then gave up, that could have made the whole difference to South Africa being where it's at today. I mean, and I think contextually as well, I would, I would want to stress that we were very, very privileged to be given the opportunity to make the special contribution that we were asked to make. Uh, and if we have time, we can talk a little bit more about the practicalities and the realities of the actual operations we were engaged in. But uh, it has to be stressed that the main people who suffered under apartheid were the people of South Africa, and the main people who succeeded in overthrowing apartheid were the people of South Africa through mass uh, struggle mass peaceful resistance and through the armed struggle as well. Uh, international solidarity played an important part of that, but the main thrust of that fight 
fell upon and was carried out by the people of South Africa themselves. And we, you know, we were just so fortunate to have had the opportunity to play our small part in that. And one of the questions I want to ask both of you guys is you guys are roughly me and Gifford's age when you were roughly getting involved in the London Brass as NEC, because me and Gifford are 17. So what was it like, like, obviously at this age, we're obviously peer pressured and influenced by our environments. So, and the ANC was deemed by the media as a terrorist organisation. Was it hard for you guys joining or taking part of it? Uh, did you guys lose any friends because, because of it, even if you were doing it in secret? And what, what really made you stand out amongst your peers? It wasn't hard. It was an honour. Yeah, and for me, it was a really big honour because not only did I have the opportunity of being involved in the, with the London recruits at that period in terms of setting off leaflet bombs, in terms of loudspeaker devices that were used to inform the people of South Africa, particularly the black majority population, that the ANC was not dead. They were alive and kicking because the South African uh, military specifically, and the apartheid government had convinced themselves that since the Rurania trial and imprisoning Nelson Mandela, they had killed off the ANC. We were brought up in, uh, with an understanding, an historical understanding, that you could take back a fair way, I suppose. So one of the things that was in our consciousness was the amazing role of the French resistance and the other resistance, the partisans in, in the Soviet Union... Uh, the fight against Nazism in, in, in the Second World War. Uh, and, of course, the French resistance were condemned as terrorists by many at the time. Um, we were brought up to uh, recognise the importance of the international solidarity during the Spanish Civil War when people went from all over the world to defend against Franco's fascist coup and try to defend the Spanish Republic. Uh, Beyond that, as I say, I personally had been involved in uh, political activity, anti-colonialist activity from the age of 15. So we knew and saw these people as people like us, as people with beliefs in common with us, with humanity in common with us. So there was no way these could, in our minds, be seen as terrorists. Uh, These were freedom fighters. And we knew which side we were on, and we could see who was calling them those names. And so that also made it easy. We didn't have to think about whose side we were on. And, uh, you know, it is much harder in the world today, and the media is very powerful in influencing people's minds and thinking, and they confuse completely uh, issues and people and movements organisations in people's minds. So I think you guys are being very, very modest about how it wasn't easy because I actually study media. <laughs> I study media in college, so I know how the media can target certain demographics, how they can literally, imp- we call it hypodermic needle uh, syringe, I think, or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. How yeah. they imp- oh, so basically they implant certain things a certain demographic could they know it will affect a certain demographic this way and they push our agendas yeah so, so we had our collective exactly. solidarity as well we had our support mechanisms amongst ourselves yeah, these are just we shared <laughs> something in common and we talked it out amongst ourselves that gave us a protection we gave us the power of of unity the, the power of the strength of 
you know, we're not on a camera, but, you know, take your hand, give me your hand. Yeah? <laughs> I can snap every one of your fingers off. Give me that fist. What can I do? Yeah? Nothing. And that's an important understanding that, you know, the power of unity, that together we are strong and individually we are all weak. It's not just our mind, it is our bodies and our numbers. And, and you know, we are the majority. And being a part of that majority and knowing and feeling that you're a part of that majority gives you enormous strength. I just want to make one comment. Yeah? In looking at the scenario where we were involved in South Africa in those days, you now begin to see the similar scenario with regard to Palestine today and how the movement in support of the Palestinian people has grown over the past few years. Right? That was the period like we were involved in uh, South Africa in the 60s, 70s. Yeah? Okay, yeah, it makes it easier for us to visualize now. Um, so a quick question. Do you think if you guys, if you think, do you guys think a social media was as proficient as it was in your days as it is in ours? Um, you guys could have spread your movement across quicker. I think <laughs> there's two sides to that. Social media provides communication and access and information albeit often completely un... Let's take a simple thing, mm-hmm. like a mobile phone. Yeah. Right? I'm on a mission to Durban. Right? I'm told what my mission is. I have to carry it out and come back. Right? Part of that mission was to meet somebody. Now, the people who sent me knew for a while that meeting wasn't going to take place. But there was no way they could... If we have had a mobile phone... They could have told me that before I went mm. to that meeting. Yeah, so there was none of that sort of, none of that sort of helpful um, terms in terms of what social media does today, or what the mobile phone is. We didn't have it. I had a watch, right, which is the most technical thing, advantage that I could pump in telephone numbers and then put a code. Right? And the only way you could access those telephone numbers is if you had a code. And that was it. That was the only technology yes, in terms of I had. So I wanted to know, what was it like? Um, how did you travel to South Africa? What was it like traveling there? Uh, when I did the first mission, I uh, went to the airport. You had to have a smallpox jab, yellow fever jab, and uh, get on a plane. I think it was 1976. I had to do a mission, a solo mission. Uh, That meant that I had to go to Nairobi. I had to meet somebody. Now, this person I met, right, the first time I met him was on the the, uh, northern line, Tottenham Court Road. I was with Ronnie, and uh, we had to get on a certain part of the carriage because they'd all pre-planned this in advance, right? And the guy would be sitting on the train already, on the tube already. Yeah. And Ronnie would indicate, because they both know one another. All I had to do was to look. I couldn't say anything else, and he had to look at me. Right? And in his memoirs, he actually talks about us meeting three times, and it was only on the fourth time that we actually spoke to one another. And uh, the mission was to pick up a Fortune Mason's box, is it? Right? Uh, with plastic explosives inside and to take that to Lesotho via the airport in uh, Johannesburg. 
and uh, picked up the box and uh, some detonators as well. Uh, they, you had to store them separately from the explosives, you see, just to be on the safe side. <laughs> and I went to, I arrived at Joburg Airport. I had, well, first of all, my story was that I picked this box up in uh, England because it's quite normal for uh, middle rich people to take these boxes uh, to their friends in South Africa. This is a nice present. So the South Africans were used to these boxes coming through. But I picked it up in uh, Nairobi. And it was only when I got on the flight and I looked at my flight ticket that I realised my weight had increased. So I had to change the story in my head. I had to think of a new story now in my head, how I met these people in Nairobi. Yeah, just in case, just to be on the safe side. Because if I said I'd pick these boxes up in England and they looked at my ticket, impossible. Right? So I arrived at Gansmuts uh, Airport, I had the box and I had my luggage. I got pulled over by the customs people. They asked me what this was for. I said, oh, I'm taking it to some friends in the city. They opened up the top bit. And they pulled a couple of things from the top. Normal things that you would find in a Fortune Mason's box. Well, I wouldn't know because I've never seen one in my life. I'd never actually even seen inside this one. Right? But it didn't go any further. And then what I had to do was to hire... A, a, I just passed my driving test, by the way. And uh, I had to hire, hire a mini car to drive it to Lesotho. Well, the box wouldn't fit in the boot, would it? My luggage would, but so I had to put the box on the seat. So I'm driving along, and uh, there's this uh, soldier wanting a lift. Right, so I gave him a lift. Thought this would be a nice idea. Right, nice bit of cover for me, just in case somebody asks where I was, etc. And when I got to the um, uh, border, Lesotho, nothing. Nobody looked in the box or anything like that. And then I got to, I thought, oh, no, I'll have a beer and uh, a, a bit of steak, which I like, yeah, having completed all this mission. So I'm sitting in this cafe, right, and uh, two guys start to question me, two white guys, right, and so I answer their questions, and I'm glad I had the soldier, I'd given a lift to the soldier, because I mentioned that I'd also given a lift to an SADF person, Right, so just to be on the safe side, that, that really helped, and they left me alone. That's what happened. So when we went from 69 to 71 taking uh, for the leaflet distribution, the leaflets were distributed. Oh, the yeah. technical guys of the ANC were absolutely amazing, so they created all sorts of clever devices. One of them was the, the bucket bomb, the leaflet bomb. And uh, this was constructed. So when we left Britain, we had suitcases, You've seen old suitcases, the sort of like a wooden framed suitcase yeah. back from the day? No, never seen one of those? Ah. <laughs> Show you a picture. Well, they, they were solid. Uh, they were cardboard, actually, with a, with, a, with a sort of plastic frame. But they were about this deep, quite, quite a good size. What the ANC did was put a fiberglass false bottom in them, about two inches deep, and in there was hidden thousands and thousands and thousands of leaflets for distribution on ML paper, so they were very thin and light. Um, key explosive 
device, which was a length of about six inches of aluminium pipe, about an inch in diameter and six inches long. Half of it was packed with the explosive. So that went, but the suitcase was then relined with dazzle paper. It was real chaotic pattern. And so if you opened it and looked inside, you could not see how deep it was. You couldn't, your eyes just went, you couldn't focus at all. So you couldn't tell it was that much shallower inside than out. When you got there, you then got got yourself a standing knife and cut the fiberglass full space out and took the stuff out. You then had to go to a hardware store and buy a broom handle, cut off a length of the broom handle, and that would push down into the other half of the metal tube. So the bottom half of the metal tube is full of explosive. You put a piece of plywood on the bottom there to stand it on, glue it onto that, put a piece of plywood on the top (coughs) of the the piece of pole, broom handle, to put the leaflets on. And then you'd spend hours and hours and hours putting circles and circles and circles of these leaflets onto the top. Because if you set that thing off, it goes up into the sky. If it's a lump of leaflets, just like that, they'll go about a foot in the air and just... Boom, spread them out, and as they go up, they just scatter, and they go 60 foot in the air and distribute over an enormously wide area. So when you went at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to a main railway station, and there's thousands of African workers at the station going back to their townships for the night... They could grab them, stuff them in their pockets and be gone before anybody could intervene and do anything about it. So those explosives went in with us. And then you put it in a bucket, in a carrier bag, and you deposit it where it was going to go off with a little timer. People called it a egg parking timer. timer. I think it was an egg timer, like a little kitchen timer. And they were really inefficient. They were fine for eggs, well, five minutes. They were fine for 30 minutes. Anything under five minutes, and sometimes they just went zip. You'd set them up like that, and they go zip. And one of the teams had an amazing. Exp- wasn't you? Wasn't it? Oh, go on. It's your story then. He was doing the testing. You heard a time ago, then you heard a bzzz. So that was dive for cover. <laughs> right. This is in the hotel room. In the hotel room, leaflets all over the freaking place. <laughs> right, and then came a knock on the hotel room. Now Ken. Ken is always apologetic about this happened because he was the one who was doing that right? uh, but it was brilliant he answered the door he just kept it ajar right? and the guy asked was there a problem and Ken just simply responded fortunately it was Diwali there was a load of fireworks going on outside so he just drew their attention to the fireworks so we were down to two buckets Reflecting on something you asked earlier about how we felt and, and the question of fear and so on, one of the things we've reflected on subsequently, because uh, Mary Chamberlain, who was one of the recruits, went out as a, married, pretend, as a married couple pretending to be going out there to live and took 20 tea chests full of stuff in. Uh, Kitty's comics, yeah? Uh, somebody and Jane was the storyline, but the middle was uh, how to build a, uh, uh, sorry, a petrol bomb or the leaflet, uh, the history of the South African Communist Party or, you know, leave the country, join the MK, go and join the fight against apartheid. So they had loads of these things. But she says, you know, we were young and we were, uh, you know, determined and 
absolutely unafraid. We had no sense that we would be caught. We had training. We had, were told that if we got caught, we would get potentially tortured. If we were captured, try and hold out for 24 hours to let anybody else get away. But then give before you're broken so that you were telling them controlled information that you thought they knew rather than giving up things that you give once you broke. Because what we said to us was nobody can, I mean, people have, but nobody can withstand torture was the message. Don't even begin to think that that's possible. Was information compartmentalized? Like, there's certain people know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we met up before this book was written. We met up at the South African High Commission. Ronnie contacted us and said through Ken in 2005, the government wants to thank you for what you did and we're having a reception at South Africa House for you to come along. And there were 40 people at that. I knew 35 of them. I only knew five were involved. Pete, because I'd been out with him. Alex, because I'd been out with him. Um, Ken's brother, because I used his his driving licence to get an international driving licence to hire hire a car there rather than my ID. I said, on the one hand, we felt untouchable. You know, we, we were there and we were doing it and they weren't going to catch us, you know. On the other hand, every moment of the day as we were, when we were engaged in an active operation, we felt everybody was looking at us. They, we thought people were following us. We thought people knew what we were doing. Of course, they didn't. We were the only ones who knew what we were doing. So we, we didn't need to be that worried or frightened. I'm not saying we shouldn't be cautious and, and, and careful, but... We were frightened about what we knew, thinking other people knew what they didn't, of course. It was a funny story, if there's time. When I went out on the ship, we didn't have... ANC was not a rich organisation. It had to rely on generosity of... Well, socialist countries, Soviet Union and German Democratic Republic, other socialist countries gave them military and financial aid, but also uh, collections amongst friends and sympathisers and so on. Uh, It was an ANC bazaar, a big fundraising event in Camden, uh, in uh, Camden, Camden Town, wasn't it? Mm. Every year to raise money. So you got the cheapest airline ticket you could and you stayed in the cheapest hotels you could whilst reasonably being seen to be staying in a place appropriate for white people. Um, and you didn't a lot have a lot of uh, spare cash. When I went out on the ship, I had to share an inboard cabin with person who was a, the, the son of a white South African wine-growing family from the Cape, and uh, he shared a cabin too because they weren't particularly rich. And he set up a friendship on the ship with a uh, Rhodesian Secret Service officer that had been based in London and was going home for a break. Every mealtime... We sat at the same table, the three of us, because this guy had struck up this friendship. And I couldn't say, look, I can't join you or whatever and go off on my own. It didn't make sense. So there were the three of us there at this table every meal. And every time I sat down to, to eat, this South African special branch guy was saying to me, I'm sure I know you from somewhere. And I'm saying, I thought, well, if I deny it, he's going to think and try and work it out. Isn't he? So I, I said, no, it's quite possible. I said, you know, I come from London, you're in London. You might have come across me sometime, I suppose, you know. He's describing how he loves antiques. And every weekend when it's possible, he goes down to uh, Camden Market at Islington, the Angel, to look at antiques. Every Saturday morning, I'm outside the Angel tube station selling 
the Daily Worker or the Morning Star. Mm. He knew me. All the whole of the way through that journey, I never picked up a newspaper because I thought he's going to see me newspaper and say, "Gotcha." <laughs> but you know, who knows? Well, um, I wish I wish we could hear more stories from you lot. As it's very entertaining, but we have run out of time. I really did enjoy this interview, and it was different to the first one. You, it seems like you lot, um, Leila and Burish. They described their, like, the way that they looked at it differently compared to you. So that's, that was interesting. But thank you very much, Pete and Bob, that's for coming fine. on one Can night. I just say one very quick thing in conclusion? For sure. um, I've said, you know, we were mainly working, young working class lads. There were okay. women involved, but not many um, because of the time and the circumstances. Um, most of us had not been abroad before. Certainly not flown or stayed in hotels. So it was an extraordinary experience. Most of us went there, did what we did, and came back untouched. Some people did get caught and suffered the consequences of that. But when we went back after the launch of the London Recruits book for the launch of the book in South Africa, it coincided with Tabo and Becky's 70th birthday, Tabo and Becky, the president of South Africa, after Nelson Mandela. And he invited us to his birthday party. And it's this great big marquee with thousands, you know, hundreds of guests, family, his members of his government previously, international uh, ambassadors and all sorts of people. And they spend the whole time ribbing him because that's what you do at birthday parties, don't you? And he stands up at the end to do his speech and he says, look, I told you I didn't want this party, but you didn't listen to me when I was president, so I don't suppose you'd listen to me now. But seeing as we're here, I'd like to dedicate this event to the London recruits oh. who came to help us in our darkest hour, and we just wept. That must be nice, I stress yeah. that because it was the most emotional experience. This had been tucked away. We never talked about it. Pete and I went out together, and we never talked about it for 40 years. You know, it just wasn't... We were told, don't talk about it, so we didn't. The emotion of that was massive. And, um, but the, the, the thing was that we went there, came back, got on with our lives, and it was just something we'd done. Mm -hmm. We never thought it was particularly significant. Ronnie didn't come along and say, look, guys, we're screwed. Everything's been shut down yeah. and destroyed. You know, we want you to try and bail us out. He said, it's just a little job to do, and we did it. The reality was, of course, so much greater. And so that critical moment that we were just so privileged to have the opportunity to do was a really big thing in a small moment. But, as I say, the important thing I have to finish with in saying the struggle of the people of South Africa itself the, was bore the main brunt of, of that vicious and brutal battle and was the most powerful force in the success. And that, I think, is the lesson for all of us. You know, it is the it's the people themselves who have the power and possibility, not not just the few individuals. And we were just so privileged. And thank you for the opportunity yeah, to talk about it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's been one Mike Road Talk. Myself, DJ Fred. Sorry first. And we're out. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for tuning in to One Night Real Talk. That was myself, DJ Fred, and Sarah First. You can catch us on Instagram at One Night Real Talk. And we're out. Bye. Bye.
Oh, oh, oh.